0: Good morning, Church. The reading today is from Acts 4, verses 23 to 31. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Sue. It's going to be a great help if you can keep your Bibles open at that passage. We're going to do quite a bit of work here in the book of Acts, so it really will help me if you do have your Bibles open and you stay with me as we unpack God's word. Let me pray and God ask God to speak to us. Father, we come to you. Your word tells us that the Bible is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And, Father, we acknowledge this morning that every one of us, in one way or the other, has been messing around in the shadows, and some of us have been living, living in the darkness. And so we do pray, Lord, that by your Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, that you may apply your word to our lives, that you will unclutter our minds that we may hear the word of God as we read the word of God, but we need the spirit of God to speak to us. Pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. If you are new to our church this morning, welcome. It's so good to have you here with us. If you are new to the Christian faith, let me just quickly orientate you as to where we are here in the book of Acts. We've opened this passage And uh, I'm going to be unpacking this passage that you have in front of us. But what do we actually have here in the book of Acts? So let me give you a quick orientation. Perhaps you've read one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. If you've read those Gospels, you say to yourself, what happens next? After the death of Christ, the resurrection, the ascension of Christ, what happens next? The answer is the book of Acts. The book of Acts, Luke is the author. He also wrote the Gospel of Luke. And Luke is a historian. He's a medical doctor. And he gives us here what happens after the ascension of Christ and how this Jesus movement grows and how it spread from Jerusalem to Syria to Asia to Turkey to Rome. So it answers the question, what happened after Jesus ascended into heaven? Well, we see the growth of the church. If you are reading one of the epistles, one of the letters which are written to churches in Rome or Corinth or Ephesus or Philippi, you ask yourself, as you read one of those letters, and I'm sure you have, you ask yourself, where do these churches come from? Well, the answer is the book of Acts, because the book of Acts is Church History 101. It tells us how those churches were planted. And they were planted just like the church in southeast Musenberg by the teaching and preaching of God's word and the gospel. So in a sense, the book of Acts is like a hinge. It's like a bridge between the Gospels and the Epistles. It tells us where these churches came from when you read the Epistles. It tells us what happened after the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. It's Church History 101. It helps us to understand how God grows his church. Now let me give you a quick overview of where we've come from as we've been working our way through Acts. We're in chapter 4. We're looking at chapter 4, verse 23. Let me give you a quick orientation, a quick wrap-up of the first couple of chapters that uh, Royden's been working through over the last couple of weeks. Acts chapter 1 to 3 is actually breathtaking. Breathtaking. It is supernatural. Acts chapter 1, you have the literal bodily physical ascension of the risen Jesus into heaven to the right hand of God the Father. It is supernatural. Acts chapter 2, that same Jesus and the Father send down the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And you have this extraordinary event where Peter the coward becomes Peter the bold. And he preaches the gospel. And after preaching the gospel, the small timid group of 120 people grow into a movement of 3,000 people. Acts chapter 3. Remember, Peter and John. God uses Peter and John. This lame man, been lame from birth, 40 years old. And he is supernaturally healed. He can walk, he can leap, he can praise God. Then you have Acts chapter 4 verse 1. And things change. If this was a movie, let's say the book of Acts was a movie, the music would change at this point. And suddenly the music would become ominous. It would go into the negative key, a minor key. And you know, before you even see anything, you know from the music something bad is going to happen. Well, that's Acts chapter 4, which is exactly, precisely what we saw last week when Royden unpacked chapter chapter 4. After the healing of this layman, the authorities, the Sanhedrin, the religious political authorities of Israel clamp down on the gospel. They clamp down on this movement, this growth of the Christian church. They provoke to anger and they want to silence the growth of God's kingdom. Have a look at chapter 4, verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed, Because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them. This is where the music really gets ominous. And put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. So they are arrested. They put on trial. They warned. They released. We read in chapter 4, verse 18, which Royden looked at last week. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. So that gives us a wrap. That helps us to understand where we are now in the book of Acts. As Luke outlines, he gives us the historical material as to what happened after the ascension of Christ, how the church started growing, and then how the opposition grew against the church. Which brings us to our passage, chapter 4, verse 23. Chapter 4, verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord. Now, the passage that Sue read to us is actually a prayer. That's the rest of the passage. It's their prayer to God, having been arrested, having been charged, having been put in prison overnight, having been facing this trial of the Sanhedrin, the same Sanhedrin that had ordered the execution of Jesus. The same Sanhedrin that was responsible for the death of the first Christian martyr, Stephen. The same Sanhedrin that would ultimately be responsible for the death of Paul at the book of, end of the book of Acts. They've just appeared before them. Imagine the stress. Imagine the conflict. Imagine the pressure they're under. They are released. They now go back to the people of God, the other fellow believers, and they pray. And we're going to have a look at that prayer because it teaches us a great deal about God's purposes. Let me just go down two side roads first. Number one, if we take a bird's eye view of these opening chapters of Acts, let's take Acts 1 to 6. If it were a movie, if it were a play, it's almost as if the chief actor in Acts 1 to 3 was the Holy Spirit. It's the church triumphant, marching, growing. The chief actor, Acts 1 to 3, almost as if it's the Holy Spirit. But then Acts 4 to 6, it's almost as if the chief actor is the devil, breaking down. There's a a satanic counterattack, trying to oppose the growth of the gospel and the growth of the church. Now, Satan is only mentioned once in these three chapters. Have a look at chapter 5, verse 3. He's only mentioned once. Chapter 5, verse 3. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan fooled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Here the devil and the Holy Spirit stand in opposition to one another. But though Satan is only mentioned once in these chapters, his fingerprints are all over these chapters. You see, the devil hates the growth of the church. The devil hates the gospel. The the devil hates Christ being glorified. So chapter 46 is really a satanic counterattack. And here we see the first weapon that Satan uses. I think there are two other weapons in these chapters, but the first weapon he uses is that of physical violence. It's the crudest of them all. So he attacks Peter and John. Chapter 5, he wants to kill Peter and John. They escape with their lives, having been beaten and flogged. Chapter 6, Stephen, the first Christian martyr, is stoned to death. Imagine being stoned to death. That is, that is a satanic counterattack. We will see the other weapons of Satan. So in chapter in chapter 5, there's moral compromise inside the church. So the attack isn't from outside. The attack is inside the church. There's moral compromise. Chapter 6, we see the attack of the, of the devil once, once again inside the church. There's the first hint of division in the body of Christ in the church. So what does that tell us? It tells us that where God is at work, when God is specially active in the life of a person, of a marriage, of a family, of a church, not far behind, Satan is alive and well. Satan never sleeps. He never sleeps. But there are times when he's specially stirred to action when he sees the progress of his arch enemy, God. So he takes militant action to oppose God and his people and God's message. Don't be surprised. Remember that when you're trying to survive in the trenches. Second side road is the question, what are we to do with the signs and wonders in the book of Acts? Because there are many signs and wonders. There are many miraculous, supernatural events within the book of Acts which are not normal. What are we to do with that? Are we to see that every day in our lives, in our families, in our church? What are we to make of the signs and wonders in the book of Acts? So, for instance, Acts chapter 2, the disciples are in the upper room. Suddenly, there's a sound of a cyclone wind. There are tongues of fire. Suddenly, there are people, believers, who start speaking languages they have never, ever learned. It is supernatural. Acts chapter 3, a layman Born lame, 40 years lame, supernaturally healed. Acts chapter 5, which we'll get to in the next week or two. Ananias, one of the disciples, tells a lie. God strikes him down dead. Does that mean that if you and I tell lies, God will strike us down dead? My dear friends, I don't think there would be a single person in this room (laughs) if that was normative. It is not normative. Acts chapter 4, yeah, in our passage, verse 31, they have a prayer meeting. They say amen. The minute they say amen, there's an earthquake. My dear friends, I have been at hundreds and thousands of prayer meetings. I have said amen. Other people have said amen. We have never had an earthquake. Does that mean we haven't prayed? No, this is not normative. Normative. This is salvation history. So the key question you ask when you come to historical material in the Bible. So the Bible is made up of different literary genres. There's poetry, there's prophecy, there's proverbs, there's songs, there's historical material. There's different genre in the Bible. When you come to historical genre like Genesis, Exodus, Kings, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, you have to ask the question, is this descriptive or prescriptive? It's a key question. What do I mean by that? Is it describing what happened then, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it will happen now? Or is it prescriptive? Is it prescribing what should happen now? Now, when you ask that question, the answer is almost obvious. What we have in historical material, it is the word of God. Every word is the word of God. Every word is true. It is what happened. But is it normative? And the answer is no. It is descriptive. It's describing what happened then. It's teaching us principles. It's teaching us about God and God's purposes. But it is not normative. It is descriptive. So, for instance, it's it's kind of obvious. You read in Exodus. You're having your quiet time. You're reading the Bible. You're reading Exodus. And you read the passage where Moses strikes the Red Sea with his rod and the Red Sea parts. And so you get in your car. You drive off to Hattabiesport Dam. And you take your Nobkiri and you hit the dam. Just one clue. See that no one's watching No, it is descriptive. It's describing what happened with Moses. It was supernatural. It was salvation history. It is not normative. When Jesus walks on water, you don't read that in your quiet time and say to yourself, my goodness me, there's the pool, my pool, the next door pool. Let me go and walk on water. Once again, a clue. See that no one's watching. Now, the world is filled with weirdo Christians and weirdo pastors. And we have read stories of people, of pastors, who have hyped up their churches. They sing count, countless hours. They fast. They pray. They go to a dam. They go to a river. The pastor tries to walk on water. And surprise, surprise, there was a tragic story from Zimbabwe a year or two ago where the same, some weirdo pastor, God bless him, um he did the same thing, took his congregation, and uh, he was going to walk on water. It, it, it was a dam or a river, and he stepped out. Obviously, he sank, and uh, sadly, he was attacked by crocodiles. So, my dear friends, what we are reading there, when Jesus walks on water, that is not prescriptive. It is descriptive. That is what Jesus did. He showed his deity, his divine nature by these supernatural acts. What we see in the book of Acts... Are the, are the acts of the apostles, God's representatives in establishing the early church, in giving us the New Testament, and so God vindicated their ministry by signs and wonders. Acts chapter 9, you have the conversion of Paul. Read Acts 9 later on. The conversion of Paul was supernatural. There were flashes of light in heaven, there were sounds, voices from heaven, he was struck Struck to the ground. He was blinded for three days. That is his conversion testimony. My conversion testimony, I was converted as, as a teenager, is as dry as sawdust. Does that mean I was not converted? No. God works with us in different ways. And God supernaturally, remarkably, it was not normative, brought about the conversion of Paul. So next time you have a prayer meeting and there's not an earthquake, it doesn't mean God hasn't heard. All right, let's get into our passage. Three principles that will help us. Remember, this is a prayer, a prayer by Peter and John, and they teach us three things. They teach us about God's character, they teach us about God's enemies, and they teach us about God's servants. So let's have a look. Acts chapter 4, verse 23. Acts chapter 4, verse 23. And when they heard it, so Peter and John have reported back to the congregation of God's people, the other fellow believers. When they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in it, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. So what they do here as they pray, their first focus is God. So I think we must just take note of that because a proper prayer and mature prayer is where we first focus on God, not on ourselves. So prayer should be theocentric, theo meaning God. So you find that in the Lord's prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. So I know there are times when we're in a crisis, when we're in a hole, and we call out to God, Oh Lord, help, save, give me the words, help me here. And that is absolutely right and absolutely appropriate. But most mature prayer should be where we first focus on God before we focus on ourselves. I don't know about you, but I almost do the opposite. I go to God and I've got my shopping list. Not the the disciples. Their focus is God, who he is and what he's done. Notice three things that they focus on in the character of God. First, they pray about the God of creation. Notice there, 24, the sovereign Lord who made the heaven and earth and sea and everything in them. Now, of course, they're referring here to Genesis 1, where God, the creator, is the source and the origin of all things both big and small. He's the creator of creation. He's the creator of all creatures. Genesis 1 doesn't give us all the details, but it's absolutely clear. We are not here through evolution. We are not here through the Big Bang. We are not here through chance or luck or the Amadlozi or the ancestors. No, God is the source. God is the origin. Remember Francis Schaeffer who taught us that when we're talking about the source of all things and the origin of all things, it's so helpful, he says in one of his volumes, he says, when you talk about the source of things, the origin of things, there's actually only three options. Either the origin was nothing, nothing, meaning nothing, no matter, no energy, no chance, no time, no. Is the source nothing, nothing? Well, that's most unlikely. Or is the source impersonal? Well, that's unlikely because we are personal how can we come from an impersonal source the third option is is that we come from a personal source called god i think that's such a helpful such a helpful uh, picture either we come from nothing nothing that's unlikely we come from the impersonal that's unlikely no we come from the personal who is god now why is that important why is that important in their prayer why is that important in their context why is that important for us who may be going through difficult times Well, it tells us that God is the creator. God is the source. God is the origin. We are the creature. We are to live in submission to him. It means that he has created us for a purpose. We do not make up our own purpose. We are not our own gods like Herod or Pilate or the Gentiles or the Jews. No, he is God. He is the creator. Actually, he calls the shots. Because he's God. He made us. He created he created us. So when you live as if you are your own God, when you live as if you can create your own purpose, my dear friends, you are out of joint. You are going against the grain. People who do woodwork, I do not do woodwork. I'm not good with my hands, you all know that. But people who do woodwork, they will tell you, you don't cut against the grain. It doesn't work. My dear friends, you can't live against the grain. The grain is that God is the creator. We are the creature. We live in submission to him. We will find joy and purpose and meaning and peace when we live under this, under submission of God, under his authority. If you are trying to find peace and happiness and security, you will only find it. You will not find it if you look for it. You will only find it under submission of God, our creator, who created all things. I know that everybody has a right to be stupid. Have you thought about that? Everybody has the right to be stupid. I think you are being exquisitely stupid as a creature, not submitting to the Creator. That is stupid. Second thing, notice, He's the God of creation. He's the God of revelation. So you'll notice first creation, notice there verse 24, the Lord who made the heavens and earth. Verse 25, the Lord who said, so he's the God of revelation, he speaks. Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why do the nations, why did, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed one. You'll notice in your footnotes that uh, they are quoting from Psalm 2, which was a Psalm of David. And they are quoting there that what is happening with Jesus, what has happened with Jesus, the threats and the, and the plots of Herod and Pilate was actually a fulfillment of Psalm 2. But what they affirm here quite clearly is God is not only God the creator, he's the God, the, God the revealer. God has spoken, and he's spoken through his word. That's why we call the Bible God's word written. God's word written. What we have here in front of us, obviously it's a translation, but what we have here is the written word of God. And God used human authors like David, like Moses, like Peter, like John. They were human authors. He used their personalities. He used their particular style of writing. But the ultimate author behind that was God. He is God the creator and he's God the revealer. He's not only a God who creates, he's a God who speaks. And I think it would be a smart thing. Well, it would have been a smart thing if Herod and Pilate had listened to him because he had spoken and he had called on all people, even rulers and kings, to submit to him. I think it's a smart thing not only to listen to him but to obey him. He's the God of creation, he's the God of revelation. Notice thirdly, he's the God of history. And that'll be a great comfort. You'll see that in just a moment. That's a great comfort to us. He is the God of history. So notice there verse 27. He speaks there of the actions of Herod and Pilate and the Sanhedrin. He talks about how they plotted to destroy the Messiah and how they then eventually also plotted to destroy the Christian church and the apostles. For truly, in the city, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. So it was the Jewish king Herod, he was half Jewish, the king of the Jews, the Roman governor Pilate, both Gentiles and Jews, who rejected god 's Son. They devised plans it was a hit. They nailed him to a cross. They murdered him. There was only one innocent man in all of history, and we killed him. It was their scheming. It was their plots. It was their wickedness. And yet you will notice verse 28. Despite the evil motives and wicked actions of Herod and Pilate, God is ultimately in control of history. So he speaks there of both Herod and Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. My dear friends, that is of enormous comfort. Despite the wickedness and the evil of life around us, despite the wickedness and evil of crucifying the only innocent man in the world, And they will be held responsible for their actions. That's why there's judgment. At the same time, God is sovereign. God's purposes and plans will be accomplished. So there's a mystery there. Human responsibility, God's sovereignty. Both are true. Herod and Pilate did wicked lawless deeds for which they will be held accountable, for which they will be judged. At the same time, God is sovereign. He will not be trumped. He will not be vetoed by the evil actions and motives of wicked men. You get the same thing. Chapter 2, verse 23. Here are these two great doctrines. Human responsibility, divine sovereignty, all in one verse Luke is not embarrassed or ashamed to put them into one verse. Acts chapter 2, verse 23. Same thing, same idea. He says there, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. What we have here, my dear friends, is, is, uh, is a biblical worldview of history. Human beings act and decide and speak And much of it is sinful and evil, and they will be held responsible, and you and I will be held responsible. At the same time, God's purposes, God's plans for his world, for his universe, for his cosmos, for his people, for his children will not be thwarted. I think that would have been of enormous comfort to Peter and John. Here they are facing the most powerful entity in their nation, which has the power of life and death over them. And in the end, Peter was crucified for his faith. And yet they understood that despite what wicked men, evil, evil wicked men do, nonetheless, God will accomplish his purpose. God can use even the sinful, broken things of this world and accomplish his purpose. That's the nature of our God. My dear friends, I think that's of great comfort. Perhaps now you're battling in the trenches. There's nothing but blood, sweat, and tears. It's supposed to be a new year. Supposed to be a new start, but here we are. You can't believe it. Perhaps you're in a dark hole. It may be relational. It may be financial. It may be emotional. You may be struggling with depression, with panic attacks, with anxiety. Conflict you never thought could happen with someone you trusted and loved. Perhaps the hole that you are in is of your own making. It so often is, isn't it? (laughs) We're our worst enemies. And Peter and John confirm in their prayer, despite all of that, Despite the brokenness of this world, despite the fractured nature of society, of community, of families, of marriages, of nations, despite all of that, despite all the things I've done to get myself into this hole, God's purpose will not be thwarted. Paul tells us all things, all things work together for good to those who trust God and are called according to his purpose. It's not for everyone. It's those who love God and are called according to his purpose. All things work together for good. What is our good? Verse 29, to be conformed to the image of his son. My dear friends, that is of enormous comfort when you're in a hole. To know God is sovereign. I don't understand how we got here. I don't understand how to get out of here. I have no idea. It is blood, sweat, and tears from morning till night. But God is God. He will bring good out of evil. So there we have God's character. Secondly, let's have a look at God's enemies. As we've already seen, when God is at work, so are his enemies. And in particular, if we go back to Acts chapter 4, it's the enemies of the people, Herod, Pilate, the Gentiles, the Jews. In fact, Peter and John pray... And they tell us that actually what happened to the Messiah through his enemies was prophesied by God a thousand years before through King David. King David wrote Psalm 2. And King David was the great, great, great grandfather of Jesus. Turn with me to Psalm 2 because they're quoting from Psalm 2. Turn with me to Psalm 2. Psalms is right in the middle of the Bible. Psalm 2. Let me read from verse 1. And you'll notice how Peter and James are quoting Psalm 2 as they describe the wicked actions of Herod and Pilate, the Gentiles and the Jews. So actually this psalm is a prophecy of what would happen with the Messiah. Notice chapter 2 verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Who is he talking about? Herod and Pilate. The kings of the earth set set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart, cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So what we have here is a royal psalm. It's about the anointed one. Remember the word anoint is the Hebrew word Messiah. It's talking about the Messiah, about Jesus. Notice it's Jesus, verse 6, who God places on Mount Zion, his holy hill, to die in our place. So what Peter and John are saying, they are saying, what has happened to Jesus on the cross when he was crucified, when he suffered, did not take God by surprise. No, we knew that God's enemies would try and break down the work of God. We knew that God's enemies will try and smother and kill the Messiah, the Anointed One. It was prophesied a thousand years ago in Psalm 2. And in actual fact, Psalm 2 tells us what the end game is. The end game is there in verse 8. History will terminate when all nations, all peoples are subject to the authority of Christ. The purpose of history will be when the entire world, the entire cosmos, the entire earth and universe is placed under the headship of the Son, the King, the Anointed One, King Jesus. So my dear friends, it's not about you, it's not about me, it's not about us. It's, It's about the entire cosmos, all peoples, all nations, willingly or unwillingly, bowing the knee to the authority of King Jesus. In actual fact, as I said earlier, you will only find joy and purpose and peace in life when you submit to King Jesus. We were created to submit to him. That's why we were made. You will not find joy and peace and happiness when you're trying to find it for yourself, in yourself. You are not the king. You are not the anointed one. You may think you are, but you're not. No, we find peace and joy and happiness when we submit to the real king, King Jesus, the anointed one who died on the holy hill, Mount Zion. So you say to me, but Martin, why am I still living in the trenches? Why, why did Jesus suffer and die if this is the terminus, if this is the end point? Why do Christians still suffer? Why are Christians still persecuted? Royden shared last week how this day, today, there are people in prison for their faith. There are people today being killed for their faith. Why is that? Remember the movie Marigold Hotel? The Indian manager said, everything will be okay in the end. If it's not okay, it's not yet the end. I love that. Peter and John, long before Hollywood, quote Psalm 2 in their prayer and say, Christian, don't be alarmed by the death and suffering of your Messiah. No, God prophesied that it would happen. God vindicated his death by raising him from the dead. Christian, don't be alarmed by the suffering and persecution you are going through. God prophesied that. He prophesied that it would happen and he will vindicate you by judging his enemies and raising you from the dead. You see, verse 1 and 2 is exactly what Herod and Pilate and the Gentiles and Jews did to Jesus. Why do the nations rage? And the peoples plot in vain. The kings set themselves up against the anointed one. Here's the thing. God laughs at them. God ridicules them. Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. He holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. Our modern-day sentimental view of God tells us that God is fuzzy and warm. He's always forgiving, always accepting. He accepts everything. He accepts all. He's the tolerant one. He's the one-size-fits-all one. That's our modern sentimental view of God, but not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not the God of David, not the God of Peter and John, not the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You mock God, and if you mock God to the bitter end, he will mock you. You ridicule God, and if you ridicule God to the bitter end, he will ridicule you. Imagine, just imagine this, on your kitchen counter at home. Think of your kitchen, think of the counter there. Just imagine that there's an ant there who thrusts his little paw in your face. Imagine that. I mean, it's a joke. You can crush him in a heartbeat. In the cosmic purpose of history, there's a race of pygmies. A race of pygmies. Some of them are called Herod and Pilate, thrusting their fists in the face of a giant. A giant. You know, the heart of sin is that song by Frank Sinatra, My Way. It riles me when people have it playing at funerals. Often happens. And I think to myself, that's the heart of sin. I'll do it my way. No, we submit ourselves to the God of creation, the God of revelation, the God of history. And if we don't, he will laugh at us. Paul Tripp tells the story of a birthday party for a preschool toddler. The mother decorated the room as you do, mothers. You made the cake, you bought the sweets, you bought the chips. The guests came, all the other kindergarten kids came with their gifts. They gave it to the birthday girl, but there was one little little boy, preschool boy, who was jealous of all the... You know the picture, yes? Jealous of all the attention given to the birthday girl and all the gifts that she was getting. And so he throws a tantrum. He makes a huge nuisance of himself. He almost destroys the party until one of the mothers walks over to him, kneels at his feet, gets him to look her in the eye, and she says, Johnny, it's not your party. Verse 4, God sits on his throne in heaven. And says, it's not your party. My friend, there are only two groups. Let's turn back to Acts 4. There are only two groups of people in Acts 4. The enemies of God and the servants of God. There's no middle ground. There's only two groups. Sitting on the fence is not an option. Remember, the fence belongs to the devil. What a terrible thought, one minute after you've closed your eyes in death, to appear in the presence of God. No friends with you, no family. You don't have your title deeds with you or your investment portfolio. There you are, on your own, single, single solitary, standing before God, and God starts laughing. And there's no warmth or humor in the laughter. And yet, even in Psalm 2, there's grace, even for Herod, even for Pilate, even for the Sanhedrin. Go back to Psalm 2, I've lost my place, Psalm 2. There's grace even for them. Notice there Psalm 2, verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, Pilate, Herod, be wise, think. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, meaning submit to him lest he be angry and you perish in the way. All right, lastly, our time's gone. God's God's character, God's enemies, and God's servants. Just quickly, will you notice, it's quite striking what Peter and John pray for in the midst of this incredible pressure and stress and conflict. Remember, they've just appeared and they will reappear before this body of people who have the power of life and death over them. It's quite striking what they pray for. Verse 29, Acts chapter 4. They pray, and now, Lord, look upon their threats. That's the threats of the Sanhedrin. And grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Interesting, they pray for boldness. You see, it's quite striking what they don't pray for. They don't say, Lord, rescue us from the Sanhedrin so we never see them again. They don't pray for that. They don't say, Lord, give us one more of your signs and wonders. Won't you nuke them? They don't say that. They don't say, Lord, get me out of here. I don't think I need the stress and conflict in my life. No, no, no. They don't pray for that. They pray for boldness and courage to speak the truth, to proclaim the gospel. Their world is much like our world. The world, my dear friends, will tolerate the church only when it is the type of church it finds tolerable. The Christian or the church that the world likes is the Christian or church that says maybe, perhaps. Here's an option. It's the church or the Christian who says, you're quite right, tolerance is king. But my dear friends, that is not the church of Jesus Christ. That is not the church of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, of David, of Peter, and John. That's not the church of the Lord Jesus Christ who went to the cross, was risen from the grave, and who has sent us out to share the antidote to evil and sin and death. Last year or two, we've all been quite uh, sort of taken aback, haven't we, by this whole cancel, cult- cancel culture that we live in? Yes? We've quite taken aback by that, this cancel culture. Well, my dear friends, the cancel culture, there's nothing new about it. It's there in verse 18. Here's the original cancel culture, verse 18. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. That's cancel culture. You can talk, you can speak, you can teach, but not in the name of Jesus. Then we will cancel you. This is a charge of silence. We will censure you. So what they're saying, it's fine for you to believe in your Jesus. You're free to your religion, to your beliefs, to your faith. You're free to practice it in the inside of your heart, the inside of your bedroom, your lounge, your kitchen, your dining room. But don't bring it in the boardroom. Don't bring it into the public square. Don't bring it to parliament. Don't put it on some media platform. You'll be canceled. You'll be deplatformed. You'll be censured. That's verse 18 notice verse 31 and i am going to close and when they had prayed the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the holy spirit and continued to speak the word of god with boldness so notice that god did not fill them with his spirit to empower them to be silent <laughs> you notice that he didn't empower them to be silent That comes naturally. No, he empowered them to speak boldly. Now, of course, I am well aware that is easier said than done. It's not easy, is it? We live in an anti-Christian society, culture. I've been a Christian now for over 50 years. And I still mess it up. There are times I speak and I should have been quiet. There are times I don't speak, which is more often, and I should have spoken. I hack it. I hash it. I don't get it right, but I'm not going to stop trying. Because that is what God has called me to. So there will be times, there will be opportunities where you and I need to speak up. And it will not be popular. It may well be embarrassing. It may well be awkward. But there are times, my dear friends, you know I need to speak. And when that happens, you say, Lord, I don't know how to do this. Please will you help me? Will you give me the words? Will you give me the thoughts? Help me not to mess it up and you speak. There are times my 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 dear friends, we need to speak up just like the apostles did. We are not to be silenced. There are other times when we need to drop hints. So we don't always have to be in your face. And some of us, by nature and personality, find that difficult and hard, and yet there will be times we are called to do so. Many other times, we ought to be dropping hints, and we ought to be praying every day, Lord, give me an opportunity to share something of my faith. It's very rare that we ever get an opportunity to share the whole gospel. Very rare. But we need to drop hints all the time. Perhaps you should have a Bible or a Christian book on your desk. Perhaps that will help you. Perhaps that will help others to know that you're a Christian. Perhaps you need to have a Bible verse on your profile. Choose a nice one. Not that God will nuke you. That's not a good verse. (laughs) Um, Use your profile. When people ask you and tell you, perhaps they tell you there's a grief in their family, there's a crisis, there's a loss. Ask them, can I pray for you? You may have the courage to pray with them then. It's not a bad thing. Or that evening you pray for them and then the next day you say, how's it going? I prayed for you. What are you doing? You are praying for them but you're also dropping a hint. You're a Christian. Here's the truth. Someone has a divorce. Someone has a grief. Invite them to grief share. Invite them to divorce care. They tell you about their kid who's struggling with their emotions, with trauma, with bullying at school. Invite them to care connect. Connect. Specifically for children. Drop hints. Tomorrow morning, someone tells you about their great weekend. They ask you, How was your weekend? And then you say, Well, it was fantastic. I went to church. It was wonderful going to our church. Just a great pity that our Rector Royden wasn't preaching. (laughs) What are you doing? You are dropping a hint that you're a Christian. You're showing care. You're showing love. We are not to be silenced. Part of the deal is someone shared the gospel with you and me. They took the courage. They took the opportunity. They took the time. The antidote to sin, to evil, to death. They shared it with us. And now God calls on us not to be silent, but to share that same antidote. Let me close, and I am going to close. John Piper, if you've never listened or read John Piper, Google John Piper, listen to his sermons, read his books. He wrote a great article entitled, Listen to this The Unbiblical Pursuit of a Trouble Free Life. (laughs) Isn't that a great title? We all look for a trouble free life, we all want to gravitate towards comfort. That's our nature. And Piper quite rightly says the unbiblical pursuit of a trouble-free life." We're not masochists, we're not looking for trouble. But Christians gravitate towards need, not comfort. Our culture says, gravitate towards cult- comfort, not need. We are Christians. The unbiblical pursuit of a trouble-free life. The greatest need is for people to find the antidote. Let's pray. Let's spend a few moments of quiet as you speak to God and tell him where you are. Father, will you forgive us when we have been silent and we should have spoken? Lord, every one of us needs you to forgive us for that. Forgive us, Lord, when you gave us opportunities and we didn't take them. Forgive us when we don't look for opportunities to say something about you and your grace and your love and your hope. Father, will you help us as a church as individual Christians, to make a difference in our society, in our world? Will you help us to know that we are in God's plan and purpose? Our comfort is found in him. So, Lord, use us this week, wherever we may be. Give us wisdom to know what to say and when to say it. Give us courage and boldness for you. And we pray this for Christ's sake. Amen.